over Satan and his power, an amazing um, description of the spiritual war that rages around us that we have no, sometimes no awareness of in Revelation chapter 12. And this morning, I want to talk about Jesus over history. So welcome. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and it's a delight to be able to stand up here before you and lead us into God's Word and allow it to be a, an opportunity for us to grow. Jesus over history. I was just thinking about uh, Tom and Gail Shook, you know. Uh, there was a day in their lives, their personal lives, even before they were married and sort of those early years of life for them, that uh, if you looked at them and said that someday they would be standing before Calvary Church and talk about their work in Mongolia, of church planting, and now their work in the Northeast Asia area, bringing the gospel and the, the claims of Christ to many people who need to hear from Him as well. If you had told them or told anybody who knew them way back when in that time period, you would have thought there is just no way that could possibly happen. I mean, my goodness, look at uh, who we're talking about in some of the ways that they're living their lives. And it's a testimony that they share about how God has redeemed them and changed them like we all need it. We all need that redemption in the same form or fashion. But what God has done in their lives shows that as we wait upon the Lord, as we trust in Him, as we see that Christ is still in the life-changing business, He's still in the business of reaching people who need Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to give you assurance that many of us in this room, and as I look at the prayer list that's given to us each week, from the cards that you fill out, <clears throat> we pray for those regularly each week. And there are so many on that prayer list of family members and friends that you know that need Christ, that need spiritual renewal, that need healing in their marriage, that need the kind of restoration and the encouragement that only God can ultimately bring to them. And you have been praying for them, and we get a lot of repeat customers on prayer lists. There are a lot of folks that constantly give us the same request week after week, and some people wonder, well, do they write this every week, or is this a, uh, a copy that they just keep on passing on, and literally, I know that you write it week after week after week because you're seeking God for those people's lives. I want you to know that Jesus is in charge. He is the Christ who is over history, and that He does still do His work, and this message this morning will help bring that kind of assurance as we're going to get into some deep weeds of history, but I want to then come out of those weeds and show you and summarize how God is still in charge of everything. I'm going to encourage you to have this in hand because there's a lot here that we're not going to cover, but I'm going to touch on some of them to sort of whet your appetite, and on the back side there is more information that I am offering to you free of charge. There will be no second offering for that as well. And so I just want to let you know that this is stuff that's available for you, and we'd love for you to grow in that. And so this morning, we're talking about Jesus over history. The history that we're talking about goes all the way back to the very beginning, and that is the book of beginnings, is the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, is the first salvo against God. This is the first time God has ever been attacked by evil on this new earth that He has created. The Garden of Eden, it is perfect. There is nothing wrong. There are no sins. And then there is the serpent, and the serpent comes to Adam and Eve. They're living this blissfully beautiful, wonderful life where there are no problems. There are no thorns and thistles. 
there's no need for marriage counseling. They just have a wonderful relationship as husband and wife. And then the serpent comes along, who is Satan, and it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. As we all hopefully have some sense that there was a garden, there was a tree, don't eat from it. God has rules and he has reasons for rules. And, and sometimes we don't like those rules, but he has reasons for them. And in this particular case, I underline the key words, Indeed, has God said. I'd love to come back to that as a constant reminder for the threat that is against those of us who have a commitment to the cause of Christ, both the incarnate word who is Jesus as well as the written word, which as we know is the Bible. Indeed, has God said. That's where the root of a lot of things happen. Indeed, has God said, and you fill in the blank. Pick the issue, pick the subject, pick the matter, and you fill it in, is, he, is that really what God said? I can't believe that God would believe that, that God would say that. In today's world, today's economy, and the times in which we live, I can't believe that God would say things like that. So indeed, as God said, is the underlying attack in the beginning of the history of the world as we know it today. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the Scriptures. Jesus to the religious leaders, the religious rulers in Israel at that day, they were the high and mighty people. They were the people that everybody looked up to. And there was no one higher to them religiously than these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests. You search the Scriptures, he says to them, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now, on the one hand, Jesus is correct. The religious leaders are so obsessed with rules and regulations, 613 laws, they want to force everybody to sort of conform to their authority of what they say God says. So there is a danger of sort of the cult-like mindset that I'm going to gain favor with God by doing what the law says. So Jesus is speaking against that. We don't believe in that. But on the other hand, what Jesus is saying is that you're looking to the Scriptures, you're looking, you should be looking to me, Jesus. So we look to Jesus, as you just heard from Matt Doan and others. We want to exalt the name of Jesus. And how do we know how to exalt the name of Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do we know anything about Jesus? So Jesus says, it is these that testify about me. So going back to the garden, serpent says, indeed has God said, Jesus comes along then a long time after that, and then he challenges the religious leaders of the day because they have this obsession about rules and regulations, what they claim is from God. But God says through Christ, he says, but you need the Word because it's the Word that testifies about me. You can't know me if you don't have what we now call the Bible. You can't know me if you don't have the Scriptures. And so Jesus has given to us scriptures so we can know him. And here is the underlying problem of many today. We don't know the scriptures, and we don't even believe in truth, as truth has been established by God, absolute truth. And it's always intriguing to me that here today, and here's sort of a parenthetical thought. This is just me speaking, so you don't need to listen or even agree with me. But here's a parenthetical thought. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the news today about fake news, fake news. If you read the news, if you hear the news, you hear a lot about fake news. Fake news is just a byproduct of a mindset that we don't really believe in any truth, 
and we'll just make it up as we go. It's sort of a byproduct of, of the times in which we live, which is also this wonderfully slippery slope that is so easy for people to slide down because when Jesus says, the Scriptures testify about me, unless you know the truth, you won't know the truth that sets you free. So if we can undermine truth, we can undermine Jesus. If we undermine Jesus, we undermine salvation and beliefs that makes life better for us according to God. So this is the, this is the historical backdrop of all these things. So then Genesis 3.15, after indeed, as God said, Adam and Eve sin, and here's part of that curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So Adam and Eve, before sin, never needed marriage counseling, never needed therapy, never needed to go to a marriage seminar like we're going to have in February. They wouldn't need to show up for that February meeting. But now that sin has come in, they've got discord, they've got fights, they've got conflicts. It's hard for us to get along with our spouses today because Adam and Eve in the garden were cursed for their sin. So that's where it's all rooted in. It just comes out of that. So we've got conflict in marriage, and between your seed and her seed, and we're going to have conflicts between parent and child. So there's the deterioration of the family. And then he says, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So there's conflict between us and Satan and between Christ and Satan. So Satan is going to bruise Jesus on the heel and that is the, the, the betrayal and uh, Satan enters Pete, uh, of, uh, into Judas and, and he ultimately dies on the cross, of course, rises again. So that's the root of that. But then it says that he shall bruise you on the head. That is, Jesus will ultimately defeat Satan as we saw in Revelation 12 last week. So this is a, the, the curse that has been given to mankind. We're living under that curse. And so there's always a struggle to, to maintain what God has said. And today we live in the struggle where biblical truth is not nearly as important as many people think it should be. And so therefore there's this undermining of indeed has God said. That's where historically this is rooted. So today we see this. Jesus does reign over history. There, there are these challenges and failures in history. I'm going to read some text that comes out of the Scripture. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, we find the genealogy of Jesus. So there are two genealogies of Jesus. There's Matthew 1, there's Luke 3. Matthew chapter 1, it says there about Jesus in Matthew 1, 11. We're not going to go through all of Matthew 1. What thing is interesting, let me just throw this in. In Matthew 1's genealogy, we don't have time to explore it in detail, you'll notice that there are sections of 14. There are three sections of 14 that come all the way from Abraham. Now, it's Abraham that is the, the beginning of the nation of Israel, and uh, in some ways we're the spiritual children of Abraham and that, that we come through Christ. But there are sections of 14. There are other kings that Matthew did not include. He's writing to a Jewish audience. You notice that in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it's the kingdom message. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And to that Jude Jewish audience to see four, three, 14 sections mean something to them because in Hebrew, and here we go way off into the weeds, in Hebrew numerology, David's name, giving numerical value to the three letters of his Hebrew name, equates to 14. So there's sort of a subtle message to the J Jewish audience, listen up. I, like you, am Jewish. I see in the chronology and the genealogy of the life of Christ, I see our King David. He is the, 
the, where the seed of the Messiah will come from. So there's kind of a beautiful picture of some inside information to a Jewish crowd that many of us may not pick up on immediately. But in that genealogy is a very troubling verse. And it's verse 11 that I throw on the screen. Verse 11 says this, Josiah, who was one of the righteous kings, became the father of Jeconiah. And there is another name for Jeconiah that we will see, and his name is Jehoiakim. And sometimes you will see him as Kaniah. So it's a little confusing. It's confusing enough with these Hebrew names, let alone to know that one man has three that he goes by. Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, and Kaniah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So here is the problem. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 22 and 36. Here's the historical problem about that particular verse. And any of those who were students of the Hebrew scrolls that Matthew wrote to at the time would have known about this problem. And it is what is known as the curse of Jeconiah. And the curse of Jeconiah is that no one from your line, your kingly line, will ever sit on the throne of David. Well, we thought, okay, well, that's tough breaks, right? Well, the tough breaks is that Jesus is from that line. So if Jesus is from the line of Jeconiah, and God says no one from the line of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne, then how can Jesus ever sit on the throne? So that's a problem. So how does Jesus help us in this to understand that in history there are problems, there are promises that God made that you will never sit on the line Jeconiah, no one will sit along. He made the promise that no one will sit there. And go, oh, wait a second. My son Jesus is coming from that line. Yikes. Why did I say that? Kind of reminds me when Jessica, our daughter, was uh, like in preschool age. And uh, we we're kind of those cruel parents that when we said, you need to eat all your meal, we actually meant it. We didn't just sort of fudge and give up. And if you don't eat your meal tonight, then we'll have it for breakfast in the morning. We're just that, we're that mean. We need parental counseling, I'm sure. So I remember one evening when we were meeting, uh, eating, and uh, she wasn't eating for whatever reason. She became obstinate. So it wasn't a matter of us poisoning her. Uh, it was more of an attitude problem. It was a discipline problem. And we had planned to go to Baskin-Robbins after that meal. I said, look, Jessica, if you don't eat that meal, we're not going to go to Baskin-Robbins. Well, she continued to be disobedient and did not eat that meal. And it was at that point I regretted making that promise because <laughs> I wanted to go get ice cream. And so I was pretty frustrated over the fact that that didn't work. And so it's frustrating when you make a promise and think, oh, why did I have to say that? Well, in God's case, it's a little bit more significant than Baskin, Baskin Robbins ice cream. But God says to the line of Jeconiah, no one's going to sit on the throne. Let's go back and look at what that's all about. I'm not going to throw it on the screen, but I'm going to read from Scripture here. In Jeremiah 22, if you want to take one of the Bibles, that you have your Bible, turn to the Bible. It's almost right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. Jeremiah was the Billy Graham of the day. Uh, he would preach, and uh, the people would uh, struggle to listen or even respond. But in Jeremiah chapter 22, I'm going to talk about the father of Jehoiakim. In fact, let me draw your attention to the fact that on my handy-dandy little outline, I have a very conveniently placed chart uh, that I'm not going to go through. But you'll notice that what I've listed here are the kings that are the kings of Judah. Just a little bit of a background. In 
January, we'll go over this. Here's kind of the big picture, and again, we're going to wander off into the weeds for a little bit. In, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel became divided. So he had the northern ten tribes of Israel, then he had the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so they each had their own set of kings. There were no good kings in Israel in the ten northern tribes, but the southern tribes of Judah had a few good ones. These are some of the kings that are in the uh, southern tribe of Judah. It begins with Uzziah, and you notice all the way down, and you notice the last two boxes in 608 and 597, and 608 is Jehoiakim with an M as in Mitchell, and then there in 597 is Jehoiakim uh, with an N as in No, also known as Jeconiah and Kaniah. These are the kings that we're talking about. Jehoiakim is the father of Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. So this is the father that is being referenced by Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached against the kings and the rulers. He was not fearful of preaching against the almighty king who could take his life in a moment. And in Jeremiah 22, it says in verse 13, and can you imagine somebody going up to President Obama and saying things like this? I mean, but that's exactly what's going on here. So Jeremiah writes in a scroll and preaches to, Je- to Je- Jehoiakim, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, and his upper rooms without justice, and uses his neighbor's services without pay, and does not give him wages. So there's economic injustice in the land of Judah that rankles the heart of God who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling with with cedar and painting it bright red. I will live in luxury, but I won't let my people have a piece of the action. So Jehoiakim was was part of the so-called one percenters, if we think about some of those terms that are thrown around today. Do you become king, in verse 15, because you are competing in cedar? Did not your fathers eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is it not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes, Jehoiakim, your eyes and your heart are intent only upon one dishonest gain, on your own dishonest gain, and on shedding innocent blood. Your economic injustice and your shedding of innocent blood on practicing oppression and extortion. The social injustice of the times. God says, I'm just sick of it. And therefore, says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, and you notice Josiah is there on that list. That is his father. Josiah was a righteous king. He was good on all counts there. So in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him, alas, my brother, or alas, sister. They will not lament for him, alas, for the master, alas, for his splendor. He will be, and here's the, the prediction of Jehoiakim's death. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, which is low. That's, that's not something you're proud of. You'll be dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out also from Abarim, for all your lovers have been crushed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but Jehoiakim, you said, I won't listen. That's why prosperity can be so dangerous because I don't need God anymore. 
And that's Jehoiakim. I don't need you anymore, God. I'm living in my luxury palace with my bright red rooms, you know, which sounds bizarre to me. So I will not listen. Remember, Genesis 3.1, indeed has the Lord said. See, it's, no, I, I don't need God's word, truth in my life. I have not listened. This has been your practice from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. Whoa, God spoke, I have not obeyed. Again, undermining biblical truth as we would refer to it today. The wind will sweep away all your shepherds and your lovers will go into captivity. You will surely be ashamed and humiliated because of all your wickedness. You who dwell in Lebanon, nested in the cedars, how will you groan when pangs come upon you? Pains like a woman in childbirth. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, there we go, Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, his son, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. If your son thinks he's going to become king and have a kingly line, forget about it because if he puts on the signet ring, I'm going to pull it off because he will have no rights to this kingly line. And I will give over in verse 25, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans, which is another term for the Babylonians. So what is happening here is in Jeremiah's day, in Jehoiakim's day, God is preparing King Nebuchadnezzar, who is of Babylon, which is the area of Iran and Iraq today, this powerful king. We know him through Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. That's under King Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel is written in that area. And so there's this lot of destruction of the nation of, of Judah and Israel. And so we're looking at a time about 605 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come into Judah destroy Jerusalem ultimately, and then take captive a lot of the Jewish children, some of whom are named Daniel, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of these kids, he takes them away. So he says, I'm going to bring this power to destroy your power, and I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you have not been born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. And then here is this, what is called the curse of Jeconiah. Is this man of Keniah a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out, cast into the land that they had not known? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. You're done. This is, this is so amazing to think these were God's chosen children, the nation of Israel. And that Israel, the ten northern tribes, have already been wiped out by Assyria in 722 B.C. So they don't even exist. There are no kings. There is no northern part of Israel. It's only the southern part where Jerusalem is. The southern part of Judah now exists. And God's now saying, I'm going to take Judah, and I'm going to wipe you out. Besides that, the most importantly, Jeconiah, Jehoiakim's, your son, Keniah, or Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, your son, he will never have a child to sit on the kingly throne. And here we find in, in Matthew this account that Keniah is right there in the genealogy of Jesus. 
So how can Jesus ever be king, sit on the throne of David, if God says, you can't? I've cursed that. So Jeremiah twenty two thirty says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down, childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For a man of descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David, or ruling again in Judah. Then 27, 22, 17, but your eyes and your heart are intent only upon dishonest gain, shedding of innocent blood, and practicing this unrighteousness of oppression and extortion. I agreed to you and your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. I will not listen. This has been your practice from your youth that they have not obeyed. Now, it's interesting. If you go to, I don't have time to go to Jeremiah chapter 36. But let me just point out a few of those verses there where he is continuing this diatribe against this king. I'm going to bring this, I'm going to land this plane here. Just hang in with me. Jeremiah 36.3 says, Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil ways, then it will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah brings through his uh, Baruch, through his uh, rider, he brings this to the king. Maybe they'll repent if they just listen to the truth. But they're not doing that. It says in Jeremiah 36, 23, and 24, when Jehudai had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was there in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. And yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. And therefore, says the Lord, concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one sit on the throne of David, and his dead body will be cast into the heat of the day and the frost of the night. He'll have the death of a donkey, as it says in Jeremiah 22. So this is this curse. And why? Because there was a refusal to submit to the truth of God's word. Even when God's word was brought to Jehoiakim, he took a knife and cut up the scroll. He says, I have such disregard for biblical truth. Now, this is an underlying problem for us today because that's why we take the time to read people like Jeremiah who are the great, great men of our faith. But sometimes it's tough to sled through it. I get that. But what they say is as relevant as anything we face today, that biblical truth is being undermined and, and devalued so that we don't see the truth of what God wants for us. So he takes the Scripture, he literally rips it out. And there are some who are ripping out portions of Scripture today because they don't want to have this in their mind, in their heart. They don't think that God should have to say that or that we should have to believe or abide by that. So biblical truth is key. But getting back to the real question, how can Jesus be king if the curse of Ganiah says you can't have a king from that line? That's why the beauty of God over history is to rule over us. If you go to Luke chapter 3, you find another genealogy. So comparing Luke 3 and Matthew 1, we find two genealogies. In Luke 3, the genealogy is that of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Matthew 1, the genealogy is of Joseph, the father of Jesus. So the legal line of Jesus' kingly rule comes through Joseph, but the actual physical line of Jesus' kingly line comes through Mary. And there is a comparison that I want to show you. It's on the screen here that I want you to look at. And here is where it varies that shows that God is the God of history, that he saw this coming, he had a plan of action already. In Luke 3, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So Mary is in the line of David. 
Compare that to Matthew 1.6. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And boy, does that have to burn every time you read that. The guy says, I'm, I, you know, I forgive you, David, but man, you can't ever fill in the holes where the sin has been created in your life. There are consequences that sort of live with you. Reputation is hard. But getting back to David was the father of Solomon. David was the father of Nathan. And here is where God is the ruler of history. How can Jesus sit on the king when the curse of Keniah has been given? Because if you go through David's line of Solomon, you find Jeconiah. If you go through the line of David, his other son, Nathan, you do not have the curse. So Jesus now is allowed to sit on the throne of David to become the king of the world someday. Someday. He was rejected the first time. He'll come back the second time to become king because Mary's line is not straddled with the curse of Jeconiah. And there you have it. Jesus is the God of history. You see these obstacles, you see these problems that get in our way. We think, God, can you ever get me out of that? And here's why this is so important to us, and here's some application for us. Let me land the airplane. Let's get out of the weeds. Here's the reality. When we say that Jesus is the Jesus of history, he's not the Jesus just of the history of the creation of the world in Genesis 3, where serpent came and poisoned the Garden of Eden, destroyed the marriage of Adam and Eve, ruined their parenting skills, so they had one son that murdered another son. That's not just the history we're talking about. It's not just the history of Israel where God's kingly line stops and the nation of Babylon comes and sweeps away all the Jewish people and literally annihilates the nation of Israel as we know it, where it stops to exist until they return to the land 70 years later. But it's also your history and it's my history. Jesus is still in charge of your life and my life. And I don't always like the way God rules. And so I have these three things. At times... Our failures and the obstacles we have to overcome, they may seem like God has failed us and, frankly, he just doesn't care. I'm just telling you that is a temptation and that is a challenge that I deal with on a regular basis. That there are times when God allows and permits things that are just horrible, whether here it's at Calvary Church, in our own personal lives, or just in our community, or beyond. And they're troubling, where it seems as though, historically, God, you should have helped us better with this so that it is not the problem that it is. But one of the things we learned that when Jesus is the Jesus of history, there are any number of speed traps along the way. And I've put a lot of those on the top part of the outline. The top part of those bullets, those are all speed traps they're obstacles. They are things that were always there to foil the gift of Jesus. But he overcame them every time. And I'm telling you, whatever you're going through, Jesus is still the Jesus of your history. And he wants to rule over that. And so therefore, secondly, in time we will witness the reign of Jesus to provide for us in unexpected ways. Just as you stop history in the tracks of Jeremiah when he said, cursed is the line of Jeconiah. You would think, oh my goodness, we're done. There'll never be another king of Jesus. There'll be no Messiah. God, what are you doing? But then you wait. 
and he provides in unexpected ways. And the beauty of Luke's genealogy says, oh, wait a second. God, you had, you had another plan. I, I guess I didn't trust you enough to believe that you had a different way to handle the same problem. I was just looking out through my little blinders, and I couldn't see the other stuff you're doing. So I read this last week about a fellow. Uh, I was blessed by his story. I just want to read a portion of it. Dan McConchie, I read this week, this week, is the Vice President of Government Affairs at Americans United for Life. And the reason he caught my attention is that uh, Dan is a motorcyclist. Yeah, I get a lot of reaction about that. And he was riding his bike down the city streets, and a car cut him off, and he had a head-on collision with another car. He was busted up, up and down, and now he is a paralytic, paraplegic, I should say. He is in a wheelchair. He's a follower of Jesus. But I was blessed of what he said. What I've learned, Dan said, is this, that life isn't for our comfort. Instead, the purpose of this life is that we become unconformed, that we become conformed to the image of Christ. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen when everything is unicorns and rainbows. Instead, it happens when life is tough, when we're forced to rely upon God, through prayer, just to make it through the day. That is when He is most at work in our lives, molding us into who He designed us to be. My prayers are different today than they were eight years ago when He had that accident and became a paraplegic. Back then, I looked at God like Santa Claus. I asked Him to send nice things my way. Now, I have one prayer that I pray more than any other, Lord. May I be able to say at the end of the day, that I was faithful to you. It changed him. Now, when you get be- become a paraplegic, suddenly you feel like life is over. But as he waited upon the Lord and God began to redirect his life and began to bless it new and different ways, things began to open up in unexpected ways for his ministry and for his life with other people. And the last thing I notice is this. Therefore, you and I, we need to wait patiently on the Lord. We need to wait for His rule in a time and an issue and a situation of our lives that we're requesting and praying about that He will provide for us in His time and His way, and we don't always know what that's going to be, but He's asking us to trust Him. And that's, even as I say that, I struggle with that. God, help me to trust You because I can't see a way out of this thing. Let me give you one last story about that. A couple of days ago, I got an email one of our members here, and she's given me permission to share this with you. Her name is Lupe Campos. Her husband, Armando, they both come here, and they're precious little kids, and we've prayed with them, and they're a delight to be part of our church family. Lupe had a challenge in her life that is similar to many of you, I think. Early on, when she was very young, I think in two or three years of age, her mother remarried, and so she grew up with a stepfather, he said, my stepfather never accepted me. There was sort of, I don't know if it was how abusive it was, but it was a kind of a very estranged relationship, and he'd always count his own children but not count Lupi as one of their own. And for, for many, many years, and she counts at least over 16 years, she had no relationship with her stepfather. And then she started getting notices from her mother. Her mother is Catholic, and was very concerned that Lupe was coming to Calvary Church because she thought she's going to a cult. 
That's how she saw us. And then her mother talked to a priest, a local priest in one of the local Catholic churches uh, here, and said, oh, I know Dave Mitchell. You don't have to worry about anything. He's a good man. He doesn't know me that well. Um, <laughs> and so Lupe's mother was uh, at least relieved to the degree that anybody can be, knowing that I'm in charge here. Uh, but Lupe's mother then let her know at one point, I'll just fast forward in the story, that her stepdad became very ill. They couldn't figure out what's going on. So they came, and Lupe's children came in and would pray with their stepdad, but Lupe would remain outside because it was so estranged and there was no relationship whatsoever. He's not a believer. It was very tough. And she just wrote this long, I mean, multiple pages, single type page. I can't read it all. Of what God has done. Because she was so blessed, like three days ago. Here's part of what she wrote. We got to the hospital with the Spirit of God and the angels. I walked into the room to see my stepdad with my mom and the girls, and a miracle happened. My stepdad looked at me and immediately broke down crying as I walked up to him while he was in the hospital bed. He closed his eyes and said he couldn't believe I could care to come to see him. How could I want to be there after all he has done to me, Lupe said. Then he turned and looked at me and said, even though I know I don't deserve your forgiveness, I want to say that I'm so sorry for everything I ever did to you when you were a little child and all the way until now as you are an adult. He said he didn't deserve my forgiveness because of how cruel he had been to me. He said he felt terrible and he has been thinking about all the... this for years, but his pride is always bigger than anything, and he couldn't allow me to come close to me. I just took his hand and rested my hand on his shoulder as I leaned near him and told him, we are all sinners. We all need Jesus. His eyes were full of tears and was crying so much. He needed to get that off his chest, and I told him I had forgiven him a long time ago, and thanks to all that God has done in my heart and that God's love healed me with deep sorrow. I told him God wanted peace for us, and now we are going to have it and and are all together in God's love and his peace. My daughters expressed how much they care and love him. I told them we will not leave him alone, and we will be with him in this, and we'll have our church and friends praying for him. My girls shared with him that all their friends were praying for him as they all care. We could speak very little and cried most of the time. 
And then she writes this, my Sophia. She got these cutest little kids and her Sophia didn't miss a beat and asked him if he wanted Jesus in his heart and for him to be his personal Savior and Lord. And he said, yes, and he cried. And Sophia led him in a prayer of salvation as we all cried and said, amen. There's a lot more, but you get it. For many, many years, many of us are waiting for God to finally work, whatever it may be. This message and the weeds of the curse of Jeconiah has application that in our lives, whatever we may feel is cursed, whatever we may feel is unforgiving, whatever we may feel is terribly broken, Jesus is still the Jesus, the God of history. He wants to mend, he wants to heal, he wants to forgive, he wants to restore, he wants to bring together that which is broken. But the power of God, we can see his hand at work in those ways. I invite you into that relationship with Jesus. As we faithfully trust him, he continues to rule us. And that's a beautiful place to be. Let me pray. Help us, Father, to trust you. As a Christ, Lord, you've seen so many obstacles and so many historical things that have occurred where it just looks like it's impossible to get out of this. So historically, we've seen that in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. And some of us have seen that in our own personal lives. We have so many other stories here, Father, where, God, we're waiting for you to rule and to reign. We're waiting upon you to bring about justice. We're waiting for you to bring about healing and, and forgiveness and salvation. God, help us to keep trusting you that in time you will rule and bring about for your own glory the resolution of the challenges we face because you are the Jesus of history, our history. Help us. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.